0: This is episode number two of the Bearded Marketers. I'm Rob.
1: I'm Corey. That's and that is all American beard right there.
0: America. <laughs> okay, tonight we're going to be talking about optimizing for high resolution devices.
1: I want to also take a look at multi-session marketing and how we maybe need to change our perception of kind of just optimizing for one session or one visit.
0: That kind of segues into content marketing, which is another thing we're going to be talking about. Um, we're going to talk about an article that happened about six months ago, Orbit's price testing operating systems, mm-hmm. and then I think we're going to close out with a little anecdote about Yahoo and their new work-from-home policy. Right. Because that's definitely been in the news as of late. So. Right. I so see. let's just jump right in. Optimizing for high-resolution devices. I think you know something that's been in the forefront of everyone's mind for the past couple of years is mm-hmm. not only optimizing for desktops, laptops, things like that. But you know, moving towards mobile devices. So we have to build a site that is usable on mm-hmm. a mobile phone. So that's been the case over the past couple of years. I feel like most people have that under control. And especially with the way a lot of smartphones are working now, you don't even really need a mobile version for right. a site. You know, it, as
1: as webkits getting more universally right. accepted, you, as long as you you know have a somewhat decent coder and designer
0: you should be okay as long as you don't get too tricky with the javascript and right. and flyouts and drop downs mm-hmm. most sites work fine on things like iPhones and right. Android phones i think the new thing though which people aren't paying too much attention to yet is high resolution displays making it necessary to have high quality graphics and design mm-hmm. because if you don't on a high resolution display your site looks terrible right and as of right now, I don't think it's it's out on too many devices, but I think it's the proliferation over the next year or two is is going to be high enough where it's something you have to pay attention to.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, we talk about optimizing for nice resolution. So what, what one's come to mind is, you know, some of the Apple displays, Dell has some really nice models as well, but seems that image quality, I should say, uh, screen quality is one of the arms races in the mobile device, um, arenas as well. I know that Apple's come out now with a retina iPad. They have retina iPhones. Samsung marketing is geared towards who actually builds the retina displays, them and LG, but they are harping on having more, uh, pixel density than the iPad retina displays, I know Google just released a new Chrome, Chrome OS-based laptop that has a higher quality screen than the Retina. And I know the Nexus 10, actually, one of the things that they market from their new tablet is that it has a, a more uh, fuller and um, accurate display than a Retina. So it seems like one of the accuracy of what we're viewing our sites in is getting better and better. You know, it's kind of like the evolution that TVs took. You know, we went from the old TVs that made the click sounds every time you turn the channel to, you know, now we're at 80-inch plasma displays and and things like that. Um, So I think that what you're talking about here of having really high-quality designs in every aspect of your website being important, not only is important for the desktop users, but also for other devices because they're now rapidly catching up. And so your blemishes and flaws will be noticed not just on the desktop or laptop yeah. crowd, but
0: everywhere. Right. And there's there's several angles you can take with this. I mean, there are several things that you have to pay attention to with mm-hmm. these new high resolution devices, one being image quality. Mm-hmm. You can't get away with poorly compressed images that look good on your you know work computer that's <laughs> 1024 768 or whatever mm-hmm. when you spread that out into a high resolution device it doesn't look good at right. all. you know whether it's like the gradients or whatever just look terrible. right everything looks bad mm-hmm. so you you need to have high quality images you know or and or you put it on a huge display with high resolution mm-hmm. and it looks bad too the other thing is the width that you select for your site. you know, mm-hmm. For a long time, people used 7 760 something, 760, something like that, 760 right? pixels wide. I think the new standard is more like 900 mm-hmm. or some change. We actually, at the one of the e-commerce sites that I worked for,
1: we tested 900 versus 1,000 and actually saw, I think it's 2.5 or 3.5% conversion lift when we went to 1,000. So like right. the consumers are... Getting beyond people are like getting the are getting
0: to the point right because the classic 19, 8, 1920, 1080 screen which is ten eighty p high mm-hmm. def is wide enough to view a one thousand right. pixel wide and you have a lot more screen real estate mm-hmm. right there in in front of people that right. you don't need to make them scroll mm-hmm. so again you know you can't you can't have that seven sixty wide site your site looks terribly right. small on yeah. a new device
1: yeah and there's all this padding on the side and now right. I have to I mean with greater widths allows you to do a lot more things whether that's padding with your images making your text more readable but it also like like you talked about takes a little bit more effort because now we're working with larger widths and higher quality things we need to pay attention more and i i will say i think the internet's getting at, to a place now where the level of design and the cleanliness and the quality is kind of a marker of trust, so kind of bridging into you know the area that we've always kind of talked about with you know badges of security uh, affecting our trust in a site or testimonials, things like that. Uh, to me, I think that with the ease of platforms like WordPress and themes, the Standard that we have and what we come to expect from websites of design and what we uh, inherently trust about them is starting to get raised. Where high quality images, good layouts, good copy rendering, these are all types of things that I come to expect from sites and ones that I'll trust. And if those right. aren't really present, well, what what is it about this brand where they're not investing into their website? Do, am I going to trust them to ship my products out on time? Or the product to even look like I'm I'm actually viewing on this website, like when I'm buying merchandise or uh, any
0: anything that could be related to, it, or even working with this company if I'm B two B. Right. I mean, you can compare it to walking into a, a retail store. It, mm-hmm. It's it's dirty, small, and cramped. Right. That's how your website mm-hmm. comes across right. when you don't. There have... might be bed bugs here. I don't <laughs> think I'm going to set right. anything down. Right. This place is disgusting. Mm-hmm. I, I got to get out of here. I, right. It's it's like that when you first pull up a page and the graphics aren't well designed mm-hmm. and it's it the website itself isn't wide enough. Right, it's too crammed. These are things that people take into account now, especially mm-hmm. with these large high resolution monitors. You know, the old days of having the the thirteen inch blurry crt monitor where the websites running <laughs> down right where websites could get away with putting anything on there because mm-hmm. it was all blurry anyway you it took really a while tell. for the monitor warm up and you can even see anything <laughs> right well those i feel like a lot of websites still almost design for that mm-hmm. and sort of pump out images and layouts and things that are close enough
1: right But that
0: looks good enough but they're not anymore you need mm-hmm. to go with the highest quality you can you can you can handle
1: right well, and, you know, like, and we've talked about this in the past, it's very easy to find someone else that sells what you have or a business that offers that service or, you know, if I'm trying to get leads from people. I mean, the Internet is a competitive place, so it behooves you to be on point with most of your stuff because I can find someone else that, that will do it.
0: He, Rob has his finger up, so that means something's really important about to happen. <laughs> no, that means one minute left on the topic. <laughs> um, I guess we could just move on, though. Uh, mm-hmm. I know you wanted to talk about multi-session marketing, which is something that I think B2B people are mm-hmm. aware of.
1: Yeah, they look at things in a more long-term.
0: Right, because the sales process can be long. But right. in terms of consumers, though, I think you have some some ideas. Yeah, so I was reading an article on, on Monetate's blog which is an interesting
1: company that has some uh, a lot of experience in the e-commerce side of things. Um, and they were really talking about looking at more, when we're looking at conversions, whether whatever that might be, whether that's collecting an email or someone purchasing a product, looking at things beyond just the one session visit, which I think is something that I even struggle to, combat in myself um, because, you know, I I think part of that is a struggle to better understand multi-session visits and attributing that to a user, especially when other devices come into play. But I thought that they gave some really good working examples of what conversions look like for a lot of people, whether that's exposure before I even come onto your site and the messaging that I see, how is that messaging carried through on that visit if you're connecting with me through like social channels, what um, are you driving to me in the form of like deals or showing up in my news feed for exposure? Um, and I thought they really took a, a better look into, as marketers, we need to holistically understand that. I think one, that we are an easily distracted society and that I feel like for certain verticals, converting people in just one session is maybe a little bit difficult or or even maybe not even the best approach to take. Maybe it is more of a drip marketing style approach that we take and trying to increase exposure in the effort of getting you more um, bought in to whatever we're having you try to do, uh, which might lead to more long term kind of connectivity to the company and longevity as well. Um, but I think as marketers, we have to kind of get away from, you know, what was the entrances and what were the conversions in this one session? Because I think, you know, just looking at me personally, you know, sometimes I want to research some things or maybe I'm just not ready. I I think you offer a good product or whatnot. I might like you on Facebook or whatever and come back to
0: it, um, or even bookmark it. But well, it, like I was saying earlier, I mean, I think B2B marketers sort of understand Mm -hmm. this concept of there's a long sales process and there's touch points and that process doesn't obviously work for a lot of B2C things. Some B2C people understand this depends on the kind of purchase. Am I making someone buy a pool? You know, like, so there's a, there's a process there. Mm -hmm. If I'm trying to get someone to buy a consumer good, the process is obviously maybe going to be shorter and different. Mm -hmm. But I think a lot of these principles, like you're saying, can, can apply in, the, in similar ways, maybe not exactly the same way, but they can apply. And I think that, you know, like you were just saying, sometimes I just want to research something. I think this is another thing that marketers maybe aren't taking into, into account, and that is that as the internet is becoming more ingrained in our culture, mm-hmm. people are using it in different ways than they were even two years ago. Mm-hmm. So like you said, I was just trying to research something. I I can look things up all day long, and I have no intentions of buying anything. Right. or It's just consumption. Or, or, yeah, I'm just consuming. I mm-hmm. just read everything I can find and read up on things and just want to know you know, right. what's the best whatever. Mm-hmm. And I just want to read about it, but I don't want to buy it. People are using the internet in ways like that, right. which I don't think marketers are accounting for in any way.
1: Right. We don't use encyclopedia. Encyclopedia Britannica CDs anymore. I I don't. Microsoft Encarta. Come
0: (laughs) on, you remember them days. (laughs) I do remember those (laughs) days. But you're exactly right. I don't pop in the CD to look something up Mm -hmm. on my computer I just Google it, right? And whatever sites happen to come up, I click on them, and whatever. Mm-hmm. And you know, marketers take that into account in terms of that was a visitor that didn't convert, right? Exactly. But what you're not accounting for is that well, was not really right. There are new behaviors mm-hmm. for for people that surf the web that I think are especially happening over the past couple of years. Mm-hmm. And you've always had people that research things, mm-hmm. but now that I have phones in my pocket with that internet that's just lightning fast, right? I will look up anything. Mm -hmm. and I can even talk to my phone and have it look it up so
1: right right. and I think one thing that we've I think internet companies have struggled with is making themselves like memorable so especially in the e-commerce side of things you know it's like one thing to present your catalog and then I think that anyone that comes in and visit is a potential sale but we haven't done a really good job of you know, what brought this up, actually, was there was a thread on Reddit where they were talking about awesome marketing campaigns and they were talking. Do you remember the um, the Guinness campaign where the guys were uh, would say brilliant? So they would do oh, these yeah. like funny skits. So what people were talking about were even though I couldn't drink at this at the age, I thought that that was like an awesome campaign. And I drink Guinness to this day, partly because that was so funny and I think that as marketers, because we don't look at these life cycle type type of events, that doesn't that drives us to to not have smart ways of attracting customers to like that longer life cycle for even people that are coming in to consume things to having a great experience, whether that's visuals, whether that's funny ways of interacting with, and things of these natures, to where we're de- developing a relationship, not necessarily trying to serve you something up to convert you. We haven't really made that connection point yet that where some physical businesses have had to and done for, for many, many
0: years. Right. I mean, you're, you're basically talking about classic marketing and branding right. that on, a lot of online businesses haven't really embraced yeah, or we, yet.
1: or we think that it's
0: old-fashioned old or yeah. like
1: we don't wear the internet. Like, that's what old busted brick-and-mortar stores do. Yeah. We don't know how to do that. Um, but, you know, and and thinking of some of the sites that I like to to go to quite frequently, all of them have a unique personality and that's what makes them memorable for me and that's what made them stick out in my mind and, and cause me to come back to them over and over again. So I think as we look at potentially nurturing customers longer, even in the e-commerce side of things where we're typically not looking at things in that that instance, uh, I think as marketers, we need to be a little bit more smart at pr- providing not only a value proposition, but a value experience and more of a a unique feel and something that drives relational type marketing more so than just conversion based in that in that session. So
0: I think you're almost sort of hinting at a, a larger, I think, problem in Internet marketing in general, and that is that it's still we still try to treat it in a completely different way than you would a brick and mortar store. Mm-hmm. So let's take, for instance, I mean, you were talking about branding. I mean, obviously, a lot of online stores don't do that the way that they should. But mm-hmm. what about like customer service? Okay, so if I walk into a real store, I'm talking directly to someone. I'll sure. get my you know situation figured out. Right. right. But you do that in an online way. Mm-hmm. You know, you send an email off to something and you never – you get a standard reply back. Mm-hmm. These are all examples of – immature things in online marketing. I mean, that mm-hmm. is marketing. Customer service is a part right. of your marketing. And if that isn't handled outstandingly well, mm-hmm. like it should be in the real world, people, right. you know, dismiss your site. You, mm-hmm. You've hurt your brand.
1: Mm-hmm. I think, I wonder how much of that is also influenced by the availability of metrics. So, you know, we have this culture of, well, I can measure a lot of things does that drive us to feel like the ability to where we don't need to develop those those types of kind of soft touches you know like we as businesses as, as evolved in the past we maybe didn't have all those touch points that we could measure so we felt like as a business holistically we need to treat the customer as king because at the end of the day we know that profits went up but we know we have to do all these things to kind of drive that whereas now it's everything is as we think it is, and I think a lot of statistics are still, you know, whether it's misinterpreted or we still don't really know some things, uh, we feel like we can measure everything. So everything is, becomes a numbered base game and we've lost sight of the whole experience.
0: Yeah. Or the the experience that built up to the conversion right, that right. we're completely discounting. Mm-hmm. Right. Which is what you're saying. I mean, Correct. Y- y- you're just you're only counting that last ad click. Right that made the difference, but you built that brand online over years and Mm -hmm. that's what actually made the sale. Right. And that's, you're right. I mean, this is, that's what's lacking oftentimes in internet marketing. Mm -hmm. When you see it, and it's done well. It's impressive, and right. that builds loyalty, and you love those sites,
1: right? And I think that that is scary for some marketers because it's it's nice to be able to go to your CEO with a PowerPoint slide and say we did twenty percent of X, whereas some of these efforts that we're talking about, they may might not have an easily measurable ROI in the beginning. Like you said, that sometimes it can be a long term effort, uh, but I think that. The pioneers really, and the and the superstars really understand this, and they have a grasp of if I want to be able to hook people, and essentially create an experience where people are doing my marketing for me because we are so awesome. People like Zappos, uh, and and leaders in the space, um, then I think that that's what really helps people stand apart. So. All right. So I think that's, you know, we've covered that one quite a bit. And as we were kind of talking about these multi-session marketing uh, type of efforts, one thing that kind of came up, um, because this is really tied into what B2B has done for a long time, uh, and a lot of other marketers that were kind of more bleeding edge was delivering good content to people um, to allow that as a, as a marketing facet to to provide good content that I want to share with people that I find valuable. Now I'm not talking about the six best ways to organize your, you know, whatever it might be, white paper where you get it and it's just a bunch of marketing fluff. But, you know, the companies that have really stood out in this content marketing space have really understood that, you know, and SEO people as well, that Uh, content can really be a powerful tool in your toolbox. Um, So we wanted to kind of talk a little bit about that because it seems that retail is starting to um, recognize, you know, content marketing has been kind of a buzzword now for uh, a year, maybe a little bit longer. But to be honest, you know, the SEOs, some of the affiliate marketers, especially B2B, you know, they have been doing these things for a long time. And it seems like that just retail and some of these other sectors are not just kind of catching up to this, to this kind of a new hot, uh, out of the oven type of thing, this flavor of the month.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's sort of, it's, it's a lot like branding. I mean, B2B guys have been doing it for a long time with white papers and Mm -hmm. and ways to get uh, contact information. So download our free white paper, Mm -hmm. you know, put in your name and email address and then we're gonna email the hell out of you and right. and, and try to get you to <laughs> mm-hmm. buy whatever it is we're selling. Right. But I think you're starting to now see, like you were saying, B2C people doing it. Mm-hmm. And I think it's relevant for anyone. It's right. it's not a it's new in terms of there's a lot more people talking about it now. Right. But like you said, for the past decade, you know, affiliate marketers and SEOs who need an edge mm-hmm. over competitors have been creating great content that people link to and naturally share with their friends right and now we're starting to see it so let's take some examples i mean this is really applicable to anyone Mm -hmm. but a sound audio company who sells who just retails audio things Mm -hmm. i mean you could create great articles on on the best way to set up speakers in your house Mm -hmm. or what are the differences between different kinds of microphones i mean this is content that you know, if I was someone trying to figure this stuff out, you know, I'm Googling this stuff. It's it's mm-hmm. it can be hard to put this information together yourself. Yeah, and if you have got it on your site and it's easy to understand, and you're like, okay, I got it. Well, I might as well just buy from you. I've already got that trust built in.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, and I think an interesting thing that I feel like so many companies really don't grasp well as all well is, so so you're talking about pre-sale. I think that also there's something to be said for having good content for people to understand what you're offering and take full benefit out of. So let's look at some examples of maybe people that are offering things like AdWords tools, or maybe it's a technology company that's offering a service, maybe it's like an API, things like that. And having good, well thought out content can help keep people around as well. So you're you know, long-term value of clients is going up because you have good documentation on how to get the most out of your product. Or especially if you have like a trial period, having well thought out articles on how to get the most out of it. So I can actually show you why this is actually worth you spending money on to keep us around. And I feel, you know, there's so many products that I might trial or or buy for a short period of time. And their support documentation is so terrible that Yeah, this might be a great product, but I don't know how to get the best out of this. And while people might brag about it, that's probably because they've had you around for two years and they know all the kind of quirks and, oh yeah, that that thing is hidden in this menu and you didn't know about that. Um, But I think that there's also something to be said for content marketing for post-sale or if you're kind of in a more long-term experience on increasing retention or... Uh, increasing satisfaction of the product that causes you to evangelize that a product to others. So now you have marketing and brand ambassadors that are talking for you because they find even more value out of what you're having to offer for these, for these clients as well, or these customers. I should say.
0: Yeah. I think, I mean, to sort of go back for a minute when you were talking about companies that, you know, you subscribe to something and you, they don't have good content mm-hmm. to support what it is. I, I feel yeah. like so many companies, they got your money. That's it. That's right. all they care about. You know, yeah. once they get your money, there's no no more support, especially mm-hmm. for recurring monthly things. It's almost like the mindset they take is um, let's continue to build them every month, but hope they yeah. forget about us. Right. Yeah. So they we just might for-
1: even have a different merchant name on the uh,
0: <laughs> credit cards that we're running. They just let it roll for a few months right. and hopefully, you know, we'll get our money that way because they don't stand up for their product and provide good support and right. and, and hope that people are using their products. Well, a perfect right example. Way.
1: So I was looking to augment some of our metrics tools with some click tracking um, because we've been trying to take this new approach with some of our product pages where we're messing with images a little bit differently. And I was interested to see, you know, how that might be changing some of the click behavior on the websites So we were juggling with a couple of different vendors in the space and one of them had a ton of great features and it looked like to be an awesome product. I install it, go through the steps. It's not, it doesn't work. Number one, their documentation is terrible. Two, they don't have simple tools like a page checker, you know, like you've installed our click tracking on this page, check and verify that it works. Like nothing like that. And I ended up canceling the trial. And that's that's the feedback I gave them is, you know, this product looks really promising, but you have absolutely zero support for this product. And we are running tests of multi-hundreds of billion or millions of dollar websites. And I can't roll with a product like that where I don't have any confidence in. And you did really nothing to provide me any tools to ensure this product is working well and that I'm going to get satisfaction out of this, where you know I would have probably spent like five figures a year on that type of tool. So I'm a pretty valuable, uh, I would imagine, client for them. But again, the content wasn't there uh, for me to actually get some good satisfaction and usage out of the product. So I think as marketers, we need to... I think what's really driving this when it boils down to is... Everyone knows the easy best practice wins now. You know, everyone knows that I need to, you know, do X to my button colors. I need to do X with my product pages and layouts and things like that. All of that is published. Everyone's beat that to death. But now what's really going to stick out is what are, the, what are the small things in my site that I can use to really stand out, whether that's personality, whether that's unique content that makes me different than just, you know, tons of people sell hard drives or tons of people um, offer uh, server space to businesses. What makes me different? Well, it's, it's not necessarily the best practice wins like button colors and things like that. It's more like, what does my content look like? What kind of value am I bringing to visitors to my site? What expert uh, level of knowledge am I exuding to my visitors? I think that's really what's driving content marketing is everyone's gotten beyond the you know, 10 best practices on the website. Now they're searching for what's really going to give me a leg up on my competitors. And they're finding that that's really like content and brand perception and really the, uh, the experience that we're serving up to people. I think that's, what's really driving this as well.
0: Stop right here. <laughs> um, I'm concerned that this isn't recording properly. All right. Tell us a little bit about, 904 270 9603 tell us a little bit about how you're using content marketing mm-hmm. uh, you know are you a b2b site b2c tell us a little bit about how you're implementing that and how you think it's affecting your brand right and uh, where where the struggles might be
1: as well uh, right. i i in particular have quite a bit of experience in the content marketing space so tell us where you struggle as well you know how do we you know what do we need to prioritize? You know how do we even kind of go into the content marketing space? Uh, tell me what you guys' struggle are, and we'll cover that as well.
0: I wanted to talk a little bit about an article that was published. I think it was about seven, eight months ago in the Wall Street Journal, mm-hmm. and this was about the Orbitz um, website testing they were doing for pricing, mm-hmm. and some of the information they found out was interesting. Um, it actually caused a little bit of an uproar. But let me quote you some of the stats they pulled from this. Um, Mac users, they actually, you know, did some price testing. And from that data, they were able to pull out some information on Mm -hmm. Windows users and Mac users and how they use the site. Okay. So from that, they discovered that Mac users are 40% more likely to book a four or a five star hotel than Windows users are Mm -hmm. and sort of correlated with that is Mac users are willing to pay 30% more for a hotel booking than Windows users are. Now, that's not necessarily... They charged them 30% more and arrived at that. Right. So that's what sort of caused all this outrage is that... That's what people thought. Orbitz thought, or people thought that Orbitz was, okay, you're using a Mac, Mm -hmm. your prices are higher. That's not how it worked. I mean, they did price testing. Mm -hmm. And then from that data, they were able to to find out Observe that, these segments. Right. That Mac users, when there's an option for a one or two, three, four, whatever, they chose the four star hotel. Uh-huh. Which is 30% more. It's mm-hmm. not that that hotel was Mac users $70 spent more on.
1: for Android and was $85 for Mac users.
0: Exactly. So that's one issue I wanted to talk about a little bit. But I think the bigger issue is there's obviously a difference here. I mean, mm-hmm. there was a, a, a di- statistical difference that they, they pulled out of that data. How are we as marketers able to use that in terms of testing and optimizing for certain paths? I mean, we're not necessarily just talking about... Um, You know, making sure our website works in Internet Explorer and other browsers and things like that. And we're not going more to a behavioral level. Right. Yeah. And we're not talking about making sure your site looks good on a mobile phone versus Mm -hmm. the desktop. I mean, we're talking about. Is there a different mindset that Mac users have versus Windows users? Do they use sites differently enough to where it makes sense to maybe present a different site to a Mac user than a Windows user. Right, or or do those
1: devices attract
0: different customers to purchase them? Right, same, I mean, same, yeah, you're going about it a different way, but yes. I mean, so a Windows user is maybe going to be attracted to different kinds of messaging Mm -hmm. than a Mac user would be. Or,
1: you know, I think there would obviously be an uproar if orbits. Or to to take that information and say, okay, well, with that, we know we can do a twenty to thirty percent markup on our hotels for Apple users. Right. I think people would be pissed about that. Now, would people be equally as pissed to say, or to know that Orbitz, when you arrive as an Apple user, we change our sort to arrange? five- and four-star hotels higher up, whereas we might value price for Windows, do you think people would be as pissed about that? I
0: don't think so. Number one, I don't even think they would notice. Right. But number two, that's the kind of optimization I'm talking about. I, right. I think that is optimization that is worthwhile at this point. Mm-hmm. I mean, it wasn't for a long time because everyone was on Windows. Right. True. Mac, over the past few years, has picked up a significant audience. Market share. Market mm-hmm. share. And so now it makes sense, I think, mm-hmm. to, I mean, even between browsers, if we're really talking, because again, it used to just be Internet Explorer, but now we're talking about Internet Explorer, we're talking about Chrome and mm-hmm. Firefox are massive players who all have large shares. Sure. And I think actually Chrome
1: in Europe is out, is, is bigger than right. IE at this point.
0: I, I believe. It. I don't,
1: I don't think it's and, quite that way in the U.S., but over and Europe
0: so it is. The users of all of those, I'm sure, each each appeals to a slightly sure. different demographic. Okay. Well, I, so. I,
1: I even noticed that. And so I've been conducting this mobile platform test on a very large e-commerce site, and we notice these segments. So, you know, just to put some numbers behind it, um, in the last round of data that we've had, I see typically around... Our average order value is around, I think it's like $54. But when we break it down Android to Apple, the difference is measurable and with confidence. So it's about a 15% difference between two with Apple being a bit higher. Um, but, But like you said, even with browsers, I see some different behaviors. So it wasn't the mobile test, but we recently ran a test where instead of our default action on the website was if you added something to cart, we would take you to the cart page, then you'd have to navigate back to the product page. So one functionality that we tested was when you added something to cart, you stay on the product page A mini cart is generated on the page in a modal box. And then you can decide if you want to go to checkout or stay on the page or navigate, you know, back to the site. So we saw a nice, addition to the site conversion-wise. But in particular, we saw that Chrome users really took to that functionality. Now, we did some usability testing just to make sure it wasn't rendering any differently, which it wasn't. But for some reason, Chrome attracts a user group. So Firefox and IE were both in the 4% kind of gain window. um, But Chrome... And, and this is a huge sample group so we had over like 400,000 so users completely visitors, valid, completely valid. About, yeah. um chrome was like 7.8% conversion lift right. so yeah. markably different and with extreme confidence that we're noticing that certain devices certain technologies is attracting certain users that that like things differently and respond to on our site and you know at a certain point we have to One, as a business aside, how much is it going to cost us to pursue that versus what we're going to be getting? And also what's kind of nice to know versus we need to pursue this. Um, But also like you kind of raised is what's the ethics behind it as well. So if we know that we can potentially play around with margins for certain users, well, we might be able to extract more profits out of there, but we also run the risk of if that were to come out, one, the brand backlash on that, but two, like, what is the ethics for our business and our marketing to even really do that? I mean, right. I think there's something to be said for being responsible as a company. I I, for, I think it's Google's as do good uh, as a company <laughs> mantra, which is interesting with some right. of the things that they do. But um, I think
0: they changed that actually. I don't want to I don't want to put that down on the record, but I okay. think they changed that.
1: But um. Yeah. I mean, I think that some of these things are interesting to learn, but I think as a business, we need to strongly evaluate how we use this type of information and for what good is it uh, and what is the ethical ramifications as well. So I'm all for you know, learning more about the personas that these types of uh, metrics might be telling us are using our sites differently. I think we have to tread some careful waters uh, with how we're using it, though, because some missteps can, can cause uh, some serious ramifications for our business. I mean, look, you know, with Chick-fil-A recently, I mean, the laundry list is uh, quite
0: extensive on different companies that have had some missteps. But it it reminds me of OKCupid runs a blog, OKCupid.com, mm-hmm. the online dating website, and they run a blog and they do I think it's run by or was started by a few guys who are really into statistics. So they run a lot of data analysis on their users, their you know, their online dating users. And I remember they pulled some interesting stats about like phone usage. So iPhone users and I don't remember the exact stats. Mm-hmm. So you could look it up on Cupid, I think it's dot com slash blog or something like that. You could find out, you know, iPhone users were X times more likely to have sex, you know, over the course of a week than Android users uh. were. And they had some interesting data, Mm -hmm. which... Kind of like our bachelor reservation story (laughs) that we were talking about. A couple... Right.
1: Bachelor story, or uh, bachelor party.
0: Yeah, so it's... It makes sense when you think about it that, Mm -hmm. yes, there are differences. And I think most people would would recognize that. I think the real issue is how do we interpret those differences Mm -hmm. and what do we do about them, if anything? Mm -hmm. Are they large enough differences... Like, you know, like you just said for that, that Chrome test mm-hmm. with the modal window with the checkout. I mean, that's a massive difference. And right. So that's like millions of dollars. Right. So for, for Chrome users, line. we show them that one. Right. right. But, but maybe for other ones, we change it up a little mm-hmm. bit. You know, who knows? Right. I think this is something that people need to start paying attention to. I'm sure com- some companies do this.
1: Well, I, honestly, when I look at, you know. Working in a space where I work with large enough companies where competitive information is a serious concern, um, there's always, you know, the unknown because companies don't want to reveal what they're testing or what they know because of what competitors might find out. But when I look at big studies from what some of the big players release, whether that's like, you know, eMarketer or, you know, Monetate or, or some of these big people in the testing industries... You know, it strikes me that I all I feel like I always read these studies and think of like 10 caveats right away. Or, you know, well, that was really uh, an overview of the test. I can think of like 10 segments that I would really be interested in learning a bit more. And I wonder really how much data mining these, these people were really doing. I mean, we are working in a really you know, fresh industry where there's not a lot of experience. And I think that you'd probably be surprised at how many people, they trust the tools. They see, I got a 4% lift. That's good enough for me. You know, I, I think that some people are, you know, really don't necessarily have the mental capacity or the drive or the confidence in themselves to really delve into this data deeper. And then, you know, also not discounting what do I do with this? You know, I. So so what I learn about it if someone challenges me about it or I need to make a further uh, decision on it, I don't really know what I need to do. I mean, I'm trying to hire people in my testing group, and it's like very tough to find people in our industry that that know what they're doing and do it well. So I think that people need to really take what we're kind of talking about to heart if they want to kind of stick out from the industry and have some job security and get paid well. Um, But I think that we might, you know, we might be talking to something that seems simple for us, but not a lot of people are actually doing.
0: Well, I think there's this interesting world inside internet marketing, which is sort of wrapped up in in conferences Mm -hmm. and webinars and white papers about internet marketing, where people working for large companies who are maybe, say, in the email marketing department run some sort of test and you know, trim out some of those caveats and, and maybe really pick out some good data. So they have this, what seems like this great test where they got this great lift and they did mm-hmm. something new and exciting. And then they push it out, you know, toward to get a name for themselves out in the industry. They'll go to conferences and mm-hmm. speak about it and they'll, you know, host webinars or they'll be visitors on other webinars and talk about it. And it's all about just getting their name out. It's not really about... How solid that test data is. Right. It's about coming up with something new and, and fresh and, and getting their name out. And, well, and it has to be a three figure lift or you're a nobody. <laughs> right. Obviously. Well, it's, but it's like this whole little world of like conferences and webinars. Mm-hmm. And I think you just made a good point. And I think this is a lot of people that, this is something that a lot of people don't realize. Companies who are doing real, like serious tests, multi million dollar companies or smaller companies who are in really competitive niches. They're not telling anyone no, we don't. about their good no. tests. Right. Because they're worth millions. Mm-hmm. And you're not gonna go to a conference no. and hear groundbreaking stuff no. that that real marketers are doing out there. You're gonna hear the watered down stuff that really isn't groundbreaking. It's and it's really probably not even true, to be honest.
1: Right. Yeah. I mean it there's probably twenty caveats with the data or probably wasn't even run correctly. But like you said, I mean, we do some pretty groundbreaking tests and we don't talk about at all about what we do. I mean, there's always the, the risk that a competitor and they should be looking at what we do, monitoring it. If we make changes, then you should be under some assumptions that A, we're either testing it or we did and that's successful. But, you know, we do not divulge. And even when I worked at the agency, you know, we were working with Fortune 100 companies all the time and we published like the most meaningless tests because that's what we were allowed to publish. Yeah. Or we had to alter the tests so significantly to be able to publish it. Or we just recycled the same things over and over again. Um, And that's kind of what drove me away from that agency type of setting was you know, rehashing the same stuff over and over again. But like I said, I mean, the real cutting edge stuff, you don't hear about that because people don't divulge that information suit. So, you know, you gotta break out of the mold yeah. and and
0: think about things. Where you hear about the problem. cutting edge stuff, right here. The bearded <laughs> marketers <Sure>. every week. Nine oh four two seven oh nine six oh three. Shoot us a text, a voicemail. I want to hear about your secret tests right. so we can tell the world about them. <laughs> <laughs> I think we wanted to close the night out um, talking a little bit about this whole Yahoo situation yeah. that's going down with Marissa Mayer mm-hmm. basically saying no more work from yeah. home. Get back to the stable. <laughs> Get back to work. Yeah. Really whipping it. Getting those employees back. I, It's an interesting. She's got a lot of. Bad feedback from that. Oh yeah, the I mean,
1: yeah, I mean, internet
0: is a is a flurry right now.
1: <laughs> well, it's interesting too, and and I feel like it's not even just the internet, but kind of even just real, you know, people outside the industry always think of us as, you know, wearing flip flops, shorts, t shirts, working from home, which is true, which is true. Which I mean, you don't need to wear a tie to come up with good ideas, but uh, I do like looking pimping at work. <laughs> but anyways. You know, and it's been interesting to see all the people chiming in that have been on the hate train for what she's doing. But, you know, to me, you know, one, one she's a smart lady. She's done a lot of good things yeah. at Google. I mean, she knows what she's doing. And I think that her coming into Yahoo, Yahoo has struggled and kind of been... Um, through how many CEOs over the last couple of years? I mean they've burned and through CEOs.
0: They're drowning, right? No now.
1: good ideas. I mean nothing's really changed. Their homepage looks like a puke of E and talk soup. But you know, I think with her, her coming in, I I think she's just really trying to take a grasp of what she has. I mean, what, what do I have to work with here at Yahoo? What are people even doing? Yeah. And like we were talking earlier, I mean there is something to be said for having people in an office and what, what happens to creativity. Uh, and I've worked remote um, and done a lot of, and in fact, I do all my consulting remote as well. Um, and there is something to be said for getting people in a room, uh, hashing things out, brainstorming, collaborating. And frankly, that's where Yahoo needs to go. I mean, they are floundering and have been for a long time. There's There's been little innovation coming out of that shop for a long time. And I think that she might be onto something that might help kickstart the company. Is there going to be grumbles? Is there probably going to be people leaving because of this? Sure. But I think that people need to take a step back, chill the fuck down, and understand that their situation might be a bit different. And I think she's even said, what's... Right for Yahoo and what why we're doing this is not
0: how we feel like the whole industry should go, but it's right for us. Well, and, us right now too. Right. I mean, there are there are times where it's all hands on deck, man the battle stations. Right. We gotta get our shit together. Yeah, you know, we need to do like something. It's, it's time for change, right. and let's start from a <laughs> from a point of hey, everyone show up to work. Right, it doesn't seem that crazy to me. No,
1: I mean it might be inconvenience based on what well, your tenure has been there and if right.
0: you've worked three years from home sure it's a change well and here, and here's another thing that i think a lot of people necessarily aren't taking into consideration there are some jobs where it doesn't matter where you are if you answer the phones and do customer mm-hmm. service if you do data entry if you do stuff like that there's no you don't need to be in an office necessarily right right but for things that yahoo needs to excel in Mm -hmm. you know i.e let's get creative and and create things that are going to make a difference in the industry because google and bing right now are destroying us well i think that people because it's on the internet it's all about coding so
1: why can't you just do that like remotely just tell them what you need but what people fail to understand is it's still product-driven. I mean, that's why Google are making strides, why Bing is they're developing ecosystems. They're they're developing products that people care about, and they are always innovating,
0: and they make failures. But
1: Yahoo just hasn't bridged that gap yet,
0: and I think well, that... Go ahead. Well, I mean, someone has to come up with those ideas yeah. to begin with, right? right? So, yeah, probably... Grunt programmers can can work from home because sure. they get the tasks this handed to them, page. right? Good. But someone has to come up with those ideas. Mm-hmm. And those people need to be in an environment where they can um, creatively interact right. with uh, coworkers. Mm-hmm. And I think that the
1: people that are passionate about Yahoo as a company will understand that and stay around and, and help try to transform that. Um, but it, it'll be interesting to see what kind of evolves out of that. I, mean, I, I think it's just – it'll, it'll be interesting how it, it works its way out. But I am not one that's necessarily hypercritical of the situation. I think that people can work remote, and sometimes we rely too much on working in an office to be efficient. But I think there is something to be said for being present, collaborating, and being creative as, as well. So. Right, and
0: I think – I don't know. I, I work a pretty flexible schedule, but mm-hmm. I still like going into the office every day. It gets my mind in a, in the right place. It's like, you know, this is the work office. I, mm-hmm. I plan my tasks for the day and I, you know, I talk to the, to the boss man, the other people in the office mm-hmm. to, to get the ideas for the rest of the day. I think that kind of stuff is important. Yeah. I don't mind it. I like it. Yes, I do, you know, like to take things home and work on mm-hmm. them. But at the same time, I think the office is necessary. So I think we're running out of time for, yeah. for this, this week's episode. This was episode number two Bearded of Marketers. the Bearded Marketers.
1: Call us, text us with your thoughts. And until next time, see you guys later. and Have a great week.